It's time to hit the trail as we present your monthly dose of travel, tourism, wine and dine. This is Travel Radio Australia. Here's your host, Renz Veers. And welcome to the program, Destinations. In uh, this month's show, we'll go to uh, the Rocks in Sydney. We'll... uh, well, well, what else? We're going to learn about frozen berries. We're going to learn the uh, the fundamentals of travel writing. Um, also, uh, we'll go to Austria, and of course, uh, one of our favourite countries, Italy, and namely the city of Padua. That's all coming up on this month's edition of Travel Radio Australia. This week we're broadcasting from Sydney, uh, the Rocks area in uh, specifically, and I'm at a lovely little place called La Pan Quotidienne. Is that uh, how I say it here? Yeah, that's correct. It's Le Pan Quotidien. Yeah, my accent isn't as good as yours, but uh, it's a great little um, French-based uh, place in, in the middle of the rocks, and it's very rustic, and we're sitting in the dining area here. Uh, they also have outside tables, and uh, it's absolutely a beautiful building. Tell us first about the building here, Gilles. It was first a hospital, one of the first hospitals in Sydney, and then uh, it burned, and then uh, they did a police station here, and at the end of, uh, I think it was uh, 1974, um, they stopped having this police station here. They had um, some, some other shops, they closed this building, they had some renovations, and then we ended up in this location about two and a half, three years ago now. And I feel like I'm sitting in a French countryside, um, rustic, beautiful marble, wood. I could be anywhere in the French countryside here. That's right. Le Pain Quotidien is a concept that comes from uh, Bel- Belgique 25 years ago. And then um, that is from um, Alain Coumont, of course. Then he, he grew up the, the business in France, UK, and then he moved to uh, New York. He grew up the business there. They have uh, about 230 restaurants worldwide now. And uh, now we have three restaurants in uh, Sydney then. Well, that's a fa- fantastic concept because the atmosphere here is just beautiful. And tell us about the food. I believe it's, uh, it's very bread-based and very vegetarian-based as well. And that's right. Uh, Alain Coumont wanted to, do, um, wanted to have a place where he can offer good breads, healthy foods. And uh, now he, what we are trying to do as well is to have um, the same concept everywhere around the world. The, the thing is, um, he wanted to feel at home everywhere in the world, so he, he travels in any countries, he knows that there is a place where, we'll, where, we'll, where he will feel at home. It's definitely a homey atmosphere. I mean, as I said before, I feel like I'm in a French uh, home kitchen here. And that's amazing because right outside the front door, if you look to your left, you're, you're right under the Sydney Harbour Ridge, which is a fabulous place to be. Yeah, that's right. It's a great spot. Um, we have a lot of tourists coming in, uh, lots of American because they already know the brand quite well. And when they when they see us, they, as I say, they just want to feel a bit of a bit at home. So they, they just come in here. They know uh, pretty much the menu. It's a bit 
different, but still the bases are the same. And um, yeah, we there is a little bit of uh, business around there as well, so we kind of have some regular people coming, and we know their names. They are they're quite happy to to get in here. They they talk with our baristas, and it's all a friendly atmosphere. And what's your recommendations for people? What's your favourites that uh, you would hardly let uh, let people know about? Oh, it's quite a difficult questions. Um, I would say that the most popular dish would be the um, smashed avocado tartine. And I believe there's quite a bit of fish on, on board. I see you've got the Tasmanian smoked ocean trout. That looks great too. That's right, yeah. You can have it on a tartine. A tartine is an open-faced sandwich. Otherwise, you can have it um, on a salad as well, which is quite great, yeah. Well, as I say... Great place to be here in the rocks in Sydney. And can you give us your website, Gilles, so people can find out more? Yeah, that's uh, Le Pain Quotidien, uh, Australia, basically. And they can look that up on Google and they'll find you here in the rocks. Gilles uh, from Le Pain Quotidien, thank you very much for being with us on the program this week. Thank you very much. And that was Jeff Harrison reporting from The Rocks in Sydney. In 2015, uh, Brisbane-based adventurer Ben Southall and his wife Sophie set off on a 55,000-kilometre overland journey from Singapore to London through, uh, through 32 countries in Colonel Mustard, their 1986 Land Rover, to hunt out the best travel experiences uh, life has on offer. Last month we spoke to Ben and we uh, had a, a, a bit of a blow-by-blow blow description of the first half of his epic journey. I spoke to Ben uh, just last week by telephone. Unfortunately, it's not a very good audio connection, but I hope uh, you'll still find it interesting. Uh, I spoke to Ben about the remainder of his journey and uh, a journey which he has since embarked on to Nepal. Um, one of the questions I asked Ben to uh, start off with was uh, what he uh, what he thought of Turkey because uh, of all the unrest that's been reported from Turkey lately, and this was his response. Well, I don't know. The last couple of months haven't been the best time for our first one in um, We just come through the um, countries of Azerbaijan and Georgia to get into Turkey, and Turkey had always been our, I suppose, the golden gate of Europe. Once we'd come through the pressures of uh, Central Asia, we'd come through what I suppose is a little bit more of a challenging travel section through India and Pakistan. Once we got to Turkey, we really saw that as the green light of we're in the space, space zone now and we're in the territory that we can be fairly used to because it's pretty much the, um, the culmination of all of that journey ending through Asia and then yeah. coming into the first phase of Europe. So I suppose it, it wasn't so much there in those days um, back in about September, October when we arrived in the pressure. But weirdly enough, after we'd just gone past Ankara and past Istanbul, 10 days after we left there, the first of the, I think it's in now four attacks happened. So we were pretty lucky to get out um, at that stage. But I think Turkey's, Turkey's an incredible country. It's really at the cusp of everything there. It's obviously at the cusp of the, uh, the Asian continent, the European continent, and the Middle East that's up against it. So it's in a real pressure situation, Turkey. Um, but we had a wonderful time in some classic locations at the Blue Mosque on the edge of the Bosphorus. Um, we had some amazing times in Istanbul. Um, and it's really nice to go and walk the markets and the bazaars of, I suppose, the last part of the Islamic market scene before we hit Europe. Yeah. Um, now, Turkey was probably about uh, the end of the eastern uh, 
uh, countries you came through. You were starting there from there on heading towards Greece and back into Western civilization, so to speak. Uh, <coughs> must have been a bit, bit of a culture shock after all that time. Strangely, even though we've been really looking forward to it, it was a bit of a come down really because once you get to the countries that are more familiar and you're more used to them, even if the language is still different, the very sort of westernized style of life is a lot more understandable and you're used to. So it was almost a little bit boring coming back into Europe. But the thing that we really noticed is that um, nobody really wanted to know our story and nobody wanted to just stop and have natural conversation in the street or sit in a cafe and have a chat. It was very much more closed doors. As soon as we got back into, I suppose, that was the hardcore of Europe, the centre of Europe, around Zurich and Geneva and Austria and then into France and into Spain, everybody very much sticks to their own devices and they go about their daily lives. And that's very much what I do, I suppose, when I'm in the Western world or when I'm in England or when I'm in Australia. You go about your business and you don't necessarily ask tourists what they're there for and if they're enjoying themselves. So it's starting to look a bit alien coming back into Europe. Um, but we got a little bit of relief because we did take a two-week trip across the Mediterranean uh, into Morocco and we got back into the Islamic world, we got back into um, some wonderful questioning people, some wonderful um, experiences that just, just happened on the side of the road or in a cafe and all of a sudden that taste for war, adventure and travel was right back I believe you're just about to head off again. You know, there's no stopping you, is there? <laughs> this was all very unexpected, actually. Yeah, we got back on the 27th of January now, so we've been back for about eight weeks at this stage. And yeah. it's nice and back, it's good to be back in Australia, but when opportunities up on the door, we take new things, and I've been offered a, um, a job as a cameraman for every space camp on a new series that's going to be going out later in the year. So we'll be heading up on Thursday, this week, a couple of days' time to head out to Kathmandu, and we'll fly out to Lukla, one of the most dangerous, I believe, airports in the world, because it's a tiny little runoff, um, and it's a very, very steep drop at the end of it if you don't make it properly, and then we do a 10-day trek up to the space camp, and I'm going to be living up there until the last week of June, uh, last week of May, rather, and then heading back to Australia, and uh, at some point in the latter part of the year, the series will hit the air over here. Mm -hmm. Now, are you doing this trip off your own accord, or are you being sponsored to do this? No, this is, this is on behalf of the production company in the US. So it was oh, yeah. Years ago. Um, and these guys said, look, we'd really like you on board and involved. Would you want to come and do it? And I said, more than likely, yes. Because we didn't get to get to every space camp last year because the avalanche and the earthquake got in the way of that. So to get back up there and I suppose be part of the, the first cruise that will be up there for the last couple of years because um, every space camp has had a unfortunate run of events over the last two years. And it'll be the first time that people go up there and hopefully make some sense um, and get to the summit. So there's a girl from Queensland going, Alyssa Azar, as a girl who's coming up there, she's 19 years old. So we're hopefully going to meet up with her and see what her story's all about. It'll be interesting to meet some people, um, some real adventurers, some people that go up into the sky and climb big mountains, so we'll see what happens. Okay, well, I guess we'll be seeing lots of video and uh, an interesting material uh, online. So where can people actually access uh, your whereabouts and uh, everything that's going on? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm going to be keeping in touch with everybody through my usual social media channels, through the Facebook page, Best Life in the World, through my website, www.bestlifeintheworld.com, and through Twitter and Instagram with daily photos and videos of life in the pool and life at base camp, and hopefully some great photos of some amazing sunrises, sunsets, and just life in the Himalayas. And that was Ben Southall, uh, who is currently in the Himalayas, uh, filming, of course, as, he's, as he said just a minute or so ago. We'll have Ben uh, on the program and have a, a, a chat about his adventures in Nepal when he returns from that trip in, uh, in a couple of months' time.
Meanwhile, let's get on with the show. Here's Graham Kenlow from Travel Writers Radio in Melbourne and also courtesy of the International Food, Wine and Travel Writers Association. And he chats with uh, a, a lady called Ruth Gallus of Matilda's Australian Frozen Berries about uh, that particular topic. Well, about 12 months ago on this program, um, we responded to a bit of a scare about uh, the threat of uh, hepatitis from uh, frozen imported berries. And at that time, we spoke to uh, Ruth Gillas from uh, um, down in the Mornington Peninsula at that time, I think she was, and uh, she just launched an Australian-based uh, berry uh, product. Um, is that right, Ruth? It's um... Yes, that's right. Thanks, Graham. So it's yes. Matilda's, right? Matilda's. Matilda's yeah. Australian frozen fruit. So that was a response, really, to that issue that had arisen. I think they were New Zealand berries, weren't they, that came in? Um, look, they were, from my, the best to my knowledge, they were Chinese-grown and packed in either Chile or New Zealand. Okay. And people and didn't is... necessarily know that, did they? Well, no, that's sort of... I guess part of the issue is that we just we don't know where things are originating from and you know where they're grown, where they're packed, where they transit through. Yeah. So that's really the, that's the key point of you taking this decision. Although you were already involved in a family business, uh, I mean particularly around strawberries, the, the red the, the strawberry farm down at uh, at Red Hill. Um, yeah. So it's not as if you just sort of came out of the blue at this. You, no, no. I don't know whether you'd call it you recognised an opportunity or how, how you would put it, but um, there was obviously a, a mood in the market to know uh, where our product was coming from. Is that how you put it? Absolutely, yes. I mean, we're, we're very well positioned to respond to this. So um, we're part of um, my in-laws own Sunny Ridge Strawberry Farm, and we have um, farms on the Mornington Peninsula in the Yarra Valley and up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So we've got year-round supply of um, Australian-grown berries in the family. Right. And, and I was just oh. going to ask you, Ruth, what, what would actually... Hepatitis is not something that naturally occurs in berries. Um, no, is it a no. contamination, some human contamination, is it? It is. Do, do I need to say it? Oh, it's, don't um, wash your hands <laughs> after... Going where I think, you went. I think, I think Barnaby Joyce said it best. It's contaminated from human feces. Right. Barnaby said it's poo. Okay. So it's hepatitis A. Yeah. Right. And it, is that the one that's very hard to get rid of? It sort of hangs around your system? I believe so. Right. I mean, my knowledge of it is really just what I've sort of learnt yeah. um, but, since then. But, yeah, I understand a lot of people, um, you know, are, Sadly, very, very affected, and yeah, it is long term. Yeah, I think twenty odd people about a year ago got got crook from this. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, it, it was maybe a wake up call uh, to all of us yeah. to um, sort of read the fine print if it if it happens to be there, and if not, maybe to ask. So, yeah, exactly. um, your with your berries, they're all hand picked, washed, and packaged in a particular facility you've built up in the Yarra Valley. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, when you know, the hepatitis A scare um, happened. You know, we'll, like I said, we're well positioned to respond. We've got an abundance of beautiful locally grown fruit. And we thought, all right, you know, you just wash it, you stick it in a freezer. Um, but of course, we've, and we've been in, um, in valuating and manufacturing for many years. We make Cheeky Rascal Cider and we have Rebello wine. Yes. Um, 
But of course, to do something like this properly and to do it of scale and, um, you know, to have all your quality and food safety checks in place, um, you know, it is quite a process. So we've built a factory. Um, it's a purpose-built, dedicated facility just for the processing of frozen fruit. So it's not, um, these days in industry, there's a lot of contract manufacturing and that's why everything has a disclaimer on it, may contain traces of allergens, of nuts and so forth. Right. Uh, and it was really important to us to do it this way because I have a daughter with anaphylaxis. Oh, um, right. Very severe nut allergy. Right. And we we wanted this to be the you know a product that people could really trust and to me that goes well beyond um you know these terrible hygiene issues that occurred with the hepatitis a but you know to you know be a best standard in food safety and um, managing any contamination right so the factory was purpose-built it's obviously built to a particular standard and i guess it's got all sorts of um (laughs) all sorts of uh, protective doorways and all the rest of it yeah absolutely and we have a beautiful spa bath so so the berries are hand picked and they get a spa Um, and they get hand hulled which is meaning the calyx the green stems are removed and then they get a lovely sanitization bath right um and then they get a lovely rinse and um, then they go through the freezing and packaging process. Okay. So what started off is I, uh, I recall some uh, some funny comments on our Facebook pages saying, you know, what's taking you lo- so long? You just you take a strawberry, you cut the top off, and you stick them in the freezer. Yeah. Um, well, yes, you do that with one strawberry, but when you're talking hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, uh, it's a bit more to it. Yeah, I, I I bet there is. Now you don't only do strawberries. What what no. else do you do? Um, well, we do. Well, we're very happy to be um, sort of launching the other line. Strawberries are available now in the market. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the start of March, we'll have our mangoes, our blueberries, and our seasonal mixed berries. Okay, available. so the, the mangoes obviously come from Queensland. Yes, and Northern Territory, okay. depending on the season, of course. Right. And and um, do you turn those... We're talking about Matilda's um, as the product name here. So um, what what do you do with a mango? Is that sort of um, halved or something and frozen, diced, is it? diced. Diced. Yeah. That's the yeah. word I was looking for, but that's more than one cut, isn't it? Yeah, um, so it's ready to go into your smoothie. And blueberries, you said? Yes, blueberries. Are, so they, are they from Yarra Valley? Um, they'll... Throughout the growing season, they're from different places. Okay. So the first ones are coming from Coffs Harbour. Right. So this is um, something that's unique, and um, you know we've really taken this transparency in food labelling as far as we can. And on each packet, we're printing the region where the fruit is actually grown. And oh, is that right? So yeah. So with our seasonal mixed berries, it's called seasonal because in Australia we don't have a year-round raspberry season right um we don't have a year-round blackberry season and we don't want to be you know sort of holding fruit for too long or making commitments to supply something that we might not be able to so right on the back of each packet it's going to specify exactly what the mix is yep. and where where that fruit has originated from so it might in season be tasmanian blueberries with victorian strawberries with um I don't know. It could be Coffs Harbour raspberries, or wow, you know, that's is, uh, that's a lot of detail. Seasonal fruit works. Oh, these little fruit all need their own barcode, <laughs> individually almost. No, oh, they've they've just got a little 
just a little line because okay. that's the sort of thing that I like. You to like know detail. Where are, I, I like to know where my food comes from. Yeah, and I can understand that. Um, you know, anaphylaxis is not uh, a pleasant experience. Uh, no. I wouldn't imagine. So you've no, obviously seen horrendous. it firsthand, and uh, what yeah. can happen now? Um, are they are your Matildas uh, products available everywhere, or where do people need to look for them? They're making their way out everywhere, so we're in independent retailers. Um, Does that mean a supermarket like IGA or...? IGA's, Richie's, Foodworks. Right. Uh, I believe um, you know, in the next few weeks, a month, you know, this is the thing about working for independence. It, it takes a while for products to sort of get out to all the independents, but right. um, are we... Yeah, in other states, there's sort of other chains. Right. And do you actually sell direct? Like, I know you do at the strawberry farm. Can people buy this product at the, at uh, Sunny Ridge? At Sunny Ridge, yes, of course. They can pick it up at um, down at Sunny Ridge on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, but aside from that, no, I'm afraid we're not selling direct. Yeah, we okay. Can't, we can't deliver them. Right. They're so, frozen. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. So yeah. could people look, look up somewhere on, on a website as to whether there's a supplier near them? Nearby, absolutely. We've got a stockist list on right. the website. Yep. Um, What's the website, Ruth? So it's matildasfruit.com.au. Matildasfruit, all one word. Yep. And you won't be able to put the apostrophe in. Yep. Or, uh, au. Well, That's terrific right. to talk to you, and I'm really pleased that it's working well for you, Ruth. Thank You're in you. a beautiful position when this occurred, I guess, uh, having all that background and... And, uh, you know, the knowledge and the wherewithal to to, uh, to produce some good local berries. And, uh, yes, it's something we'd looked at previously. Um, at, at that point in time, we didn't feel it was feasible yeah. um, because, you know, Australian growing does come at a bit of a premium, but the response has been incredible. Um, people have really, really supported the product and they're so delighted to get back to having frozen berries in their freezers. Well, thanks again for your time, Ruth. My pleasure. Thanks, Graham. Bye. This is Travel Radio Australia. Uh, well, we're traveling around the globe, and, you know, a lot of people who travel, they, they want to know where they're going before they go there, and the best way to know that is actually to read about it. Sure. And there are websites out there like gonomad.com. Yeah. There are books out there. Uh, yeah. Or you get to talk to people like Peter who travels all over the world, and you might get some tips. And you probably read. Yeah, but I, I don't give good information. I only like what I like. Yeah. I mean, I'm not good at sharing because that way you, the person that you told is going to be sitting in your seat on the plane. <laughs> so you keep and the room will be full at the hotel. <laughs> well, one guy who's very generous with his information, and we always adore having him on board, is Max Hartshorn, who is joining us. Uh, and let's say hello to Max. Hello, Arthur, and hello, Peter and Martha. Yeah. Hello, Max. Hello, Martha. Max, you, weren't you also at the New York Times travel show the other day? Yes, I was. I, I had a great time with, with all the people, all the booths, and all the excitement about travel in 2016. That uh, that's the biggest travel show in the United States for consumers, and it's, it's a not great place to go and get a feel for what you could do. And and there was a many seminars there, and among the seminars was my own presentation, which was called Travel Writing for Beginners. All right, so people who might have dreamt about being a travel writer, because it's a dream, I think, in a lot of people's eyes. Gosh. I could travel. What a great way to earn a career and, and, and get to see the world on someone else's dime, most, mostly, or at least on a budget. Uh, but the reality may be a little bit different than that, right? Well, you know, I think one of the things people always say is, you know, you have the dream job and you're so lucky. 
but they don't have to write the articles. <clears throat> I do. Right. <laughs> you know. So, you know, it's harder than it looks to write, but it's also very satisfying to go on a trip, come home, get some really good photographs all organized and set up, and then pick the best ones, and then write something that really captures that place. And I love sharing my articles, and I love sharing the knowledge about how to do it. And so what I was going to do in the next uh, six minutes or so is just kind of give you just a quick overview of some of the best tips I can give you that I used for the presentation in New York City. Fantastic. Go for it. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to start out with is the most important thing on any travel story is finding out what the hook is. What's the, what's the essence? What's the hook? We call it the hook or the lead. And what I always say to people is when you came back from your trip, you probably ran into some friends or some family, and they said, oh, how was France? And you always come up with a story right at that moment, because that's the moment where you think about what was the best thing, what was the highlight. That little story is your hook, and that's where you build everything else around it. So start with something that happened to you, whether it was an experience, a place, a taste, or a quote that somebody told you, and then start with that. Um, we always talk about getting right to the point. You need to have, as a travel writer, make sure you, that in, right in the beginning of your article, it's very clear where the story is set. You know, say the name of the place. Sometimes people wait a couple of paragraphs to introduce where they are, and people need to know right away where they are. The other thing we talked about um, is having a story arc. In other words, you can't just write a story that's like, I went here, I went here, then I went there, and then we ate this. It has to have a little bit of a sense of like a challenge or a little bit of emotion. So we always say, you know, there, there's got to be something that maybe was changed in you or something that was affected by the trip or maybe something that you didn't realize that now you realize. There has to be a little bit of an investment of emotion, and something has to happen to you. Otherwise, it's just a litany. So, and also, you want to use all your senses when you travel, right? You want to talk about smells and sights, and um, you want to talk about things that you heard. You, you really try to use all the senses and try to use better words than awesome, great, and nice. Uh, you know, to get out your thesaurus when you're writing an article, um, one of the things we often talk about is, is using sources like we use wikipedia and we use travel guides that are provided by hosts that maybe if we send invite us on a trip they'll provide us with materials those are great information to salt your story filled with good facts people don't want too much history but they want a little bit of history a little bit of background so go to an outside source to get good information and put it in there mm -hmm. um i also talk a little bit about simple language don't try to write um a fancy you know use fancy words use simple conversational words um, just an example, I just edited a story we're publishing about a woman who went to Thailand and she volunteered in a dog rescue place. And the story was written in such a simple way. It was just a simple sharing of like, here's what we did every day, here's why this was a good thing, here are the people that we helped, and here's how you can do it. So again, the simpler, the better. Um, if you can't think of something to write about, if you want to be a travel writer, write about where you live. I mean, I'll give an example, Arthur, you live in... The most, one of the most beautiful towns in California. I'd love to read more about Santa Barbara. Peter, where do you live? You probably live in a great place. You could write a story about your hometown, and I bet you people would want to read it. Martha, you too. Everybody has a place that they go that is actually worthy of being written about. It's just that you're thinking of it from the point of view of, you know, you live there. Um, so everybody's a local, so think about, you know, where you live. Um, we also talk about being unusual. 
Think about a, a take on a story that we don't expect. For instance, you know, um, wine in Mexico or skiing in, in the desert of Dubai. You know, there's always fun, ironic things that people do that you can write about that catches people's attention. And the way to get people's attention is to be unexpected and unusual. So, you know, try to think of a little bit outside the box. Don't always make it, you know, what you would expect to find. Sometimes you might go to a beach destination, and there's really good rock climbing there. Or maybe you might go to a place where nobody would even think there's any wine. Like, I remember I went to Michigan, and I couldn't believe there was 30 or 40 wineries. So think about what I don't know. And, you know, one of the most important tenets we always say is, it's not really about your trip, it's about their trip. So write your story in such a way that somebody would be able to use the information and go on the same trip that you went. So, you know, think about it in terms of uh, if there's an experience that you can show how to do it, if there's a place that you really think they shouldn't miss, you know, put that in there. But don't always write in terms of it just being about you. Think about how it might help, you know, somebody else. Mm-hmm. And as a last little tip, I'd say if you send an article to an editor, if you put a little photograph in the article that captures my attention, it'll be much more, you know, in the query. That's a great way to get an editor's attention. Um, now, if somebody wants to find more about travel writing, we have a lot of it on Go Nomad. We just published an article which gives a longer version of what we're just talking about. They can find it on the gonomad.com travel site. Just type in travel writing. Um, and uh, feel free to submit an article to Go Nomad. Any of the readers, listeners, we, we'd love to he- read your stories and see your photographs. Wow. And this great is great advice. stuff, Max. Yeah. I mean, wow. Awesome Thank advice. you. And uh, definitely, I want to hear the whole presentation one day. And uh, you did a great job of uh, narrowing it down to just a few minutes, but uh, uh, really good information, Max, and um, we appreciate Thanks. it. And uh, looking forward to your travel reports because you did such a great job uh, on future editions of Around the World. And that grab from our sister show in the U.S., Around the World Radio, featured Arthur Warren Wiesenberger in the studio talking to Max Hartshorn from GoNomad.com. Jeff Harrison returns to the program at this stage and uh, he's currently in Austria. This week I'm in the Lech area of the Alberg in Austria and I'm very honoured to be speaking with Professor Hubert Schwetzler who is a, one of the Lech locals here and has been around Lech for a very long time. In the, indeed, they call you Mr. Lech. Oh, thank you. That was my nickname, yeah, all my life, because I was director of tourism for 40 years in Lech, and I saw all the changes from the beginning to an international ski resort, which, uh, of course, was a very interesting time. Yes, and it's such a beautiful place, and it's right in the middle of the uh, the Alberg region where you have uh, Lech, uh, Oberlech, Zurs, Steuben, Christoph, and St. Anton. And, and from the Lech area, you can really get around easily, can't you? Yeah, better than ever, because since two years, Lech ski area is connected with Wart at the end of the Bregenzerwald with many interesting slopes, especially in springtime because it's not so sunny uh, and therefore the snow is good in spring. And next year there will be a connection between Zürs and uh, Alperauts. In other words, that means that the entire Adelberg will be connected and it will be the uh, largest ski resort in Austria after that. Now tell us a bit about the beautiful hotel that we're sitting in. I believe it's your family hotel and it's right at the bottom of the slope in Lech. You can step out onto the, the snow. 
maybe one of the reasons why I'm still in Lech was uh, that I met at the very beginning a nice Lech girl and we are married now since 50 years and uh, from her parents she got a piece of land so we built the Haldenhof but that was the business of my wife because I was traveling around the world to make Lech popular and she was the host and the soul of the house which is now handed over to the second generation to our son Michael and his uh, nice, girl, nice wife Claudia and they also have two kids and they join a hotel training school so I think the third generation is already in safe hands. Oh, it's such a beautiful Austrian-themed hotel right in the middle of Lech, and you couldn't get any better if you're, if you're looking for somewhere to stay. This is the place. And speaking of um, your travels around the world, uh, Hubert, you, you actually were uh, instrumental in organising uh, a lot of the Austrian ski instructors to head down to Australia and New Zealand in the past. I came to Lech 1961, for one winter season to open up a travel agency and uh, as I mentioned I'm still here but uh, at the beginning uh, I remember that January was not going very fast. After the 6th of January there was a big gap uh, because there are no school holidays in Europe. So I realized that at the southern hemisphere they have their uh, long holidays so I thought we must try to get the connection and as many of the Australian, New Zealand and South American ski schools were founded by guys from Austria, there still was a connection. And uh, at the Zenit, there were more than 80 ski instructors, uh, uh, mainly from the Zürich Ski School, uh, after our season, going by boat first and then later on, of course, by air, to the uh, overseas ski resorts to teach there. And uh, so I realized that would be a chance to get rid of this January gap. And it worked. We had a wonderful ski today, and you took me around as your guide uh, uh, out of Lech. Now, can you describe for our listeners what ex- how we exactly started and, and what we did today? As we did not have the brightest day uh, and a little bit fog on the top, uh, we did the lower bit, and we started the south side of Lech. This is our largest key area south-facing. So we went up Schlegelkopf chairlift right from the center. Then we continued to the Kriegerhorn. We skied down first time to Hasensprung and did a few runs on the, on the medium heights. And then it cleared up. So we went around and went up the Steinmeder. And there a big snowstorm received us to say hello from deep winter. But after that, fighting through we came down and skied some runs near the woods because the visibility was better there. And then we ended up uh, in Oberlech for a nice lunch at Patrick Ortlieb's, our, our one of our Olympic champions, Hotel Montana in Oberlech, for lunch. And then we skied down here and had a quick look through the village. What we have not seen is the other side of Lech, which is the Rüfikopf area, you would go up with the cable car, and then the main, there is a wonderful top secret run, a steep one behind, called the Lange Zug, something for very good skiers, but the main runs go over to Zürs, with the T-bar and the chairlift you end up in Zürs, and then the famous white rink would go up from Zürs to Seekopf, Madloch, from Madloch you would ski down to, to Zug, 
from Zug again with the Zugerbergbahn to the Kriegerhorn. That's where we were. And then you have done the other thing. May I just tell you a few things for the older skiers to remember? Uh, ski instructors, uh, before they started, they had to prepare the slopes for the beginners by foot, you know. Uh, then I remember the, the first lifts were T-bars. Then I remember when the first one-man chairlift was introduced with a capacity of about 250 to the Kriegerhorn and to the Madlo. Little gondolas came. And uh, when you see the change in techniques there, also skiing equipment, you had the 2 meter 30 skis to go fast downhill, which you could not manage anymore. Piss preparation, the first uh, machines coming, snowmaking, all this and... Uh, also, the knowledge of skiers, I can give you with one example. We have every year a race called the Weiße Ring, the White Ring. It starts on the Rüvikopf in Lech, goes to Zürs, over Zug and back, including lifts. Patrick Ortlieb still has the record. It's under three quarters of an hour. And when I came to Lech, 1961 still, to go up with the Rüvikopf, to ski over to Zürs, there was nothing in between, there are two extra lifts now, there was nothing, to Zürs, then up uh, the Kriegerhorn and back to Lech, was about the day, not the Kriegerhorn, direct to Lech, was about the day uh, program of a, of a skier. Mm -hmm. So you can see technique and, and also uh, the art of skiing, the knowledge has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the program this week. My guest, Professor Hubert Schwertzler, here at the beautiful Heidenhof Hotel, right in the middle of Leck. And uh, thank you very much for being with us on the program. Oh, it was a pleasure to meet you, and I must give you a compliment. Even when the visibility was not bright and you wear glasses, you were a great skier. <laughs> well, that's coming from you, Hubert, that's a huge compliment. Thank you very much. <laughs> and how we say in, in, in Austrian, we say tschüss for see you later. Servus. Servus. It yes. sounds nice. That's uh, it's nice. a typical yeah. Austrian. Servus yeah. and see you. Wish you were here and hopefully we see you on our slopes. News and features from around Australia and around the world. This is Travel Radio Australia. Greetings. That's Francis here from the heart of Europe. Well, I'm spoilt for choice here, and I decided to go off and search for a piece of perfect Italy. Italians, it would seem, love three things. Dogs, children and ice cream, and not necessarily in that order. Italy is certainly the country of love, and without a doubt one of the most welcoming countries in the world. Italians are friendly, the food is sublime, and the history nothing short of mind-boggling. Picking places to visit in Italy is a challenge, both for those who live far away and may only have time to visit a handful of places, or for those who live closer and, like me, are quite frankly spoilt for choice. It's often those that are lesser known that reveal the most and offer the visitor the best value for time, money and culture. Venice may be on everyone's list, but if you're not into hordes of people and don't wish to spend your hard-earned holiday in queues to get a glimpse of the edge of a wall or part of a ceiling, you could do a lot worse than visit Padua or Padova, as it is known by the Italians. It's only about 50 kilometres west from Venice in northern Italy, 
and yet this bustling university city offers a treat for those who enjoy food, art, history and the chance to potter around with ease. Padua is home to the largest square, or piazza as they call it in Italy. The Prato della Valle is a magnificent square boasting sculptures, fountains and plenty of stone walls on which to perch as you admire your surroundings. On warm evenings, students sit and enjoy a picnic here, whilst tourists may wander into the basilica nearby, which along with the Domo in the centre of the old city, is a must on all visitors' lists. The old city of Padua is predominantly free of cars, which makes it a pleasure to wander around and explore, though bicycles and dogs can make it seem a tad like an obstacle course at times. The centre of the city is accessed by wandering along the old Roman road that runs from one side of the old city to the other, along which are located a variety of shops and bars, ranging from the casual to the seriously expensive. This is, after all, Italy, the home of fashion. Perhaps one of the most endearing things about Padua is the ease with which you can get around. Purchase a tourist pass if you must, and want to jump on and off the buses and trams. But in truth, even the less agile person can still get around with ease as it's flat, although the original cobbled streets won't be kind to those who think they can take a stroll in a pair of stilettos. But I have to say I saw more than one model-like lady struggling with her stilettos as she was going out to dinner. At any time of the year, there will be a plethora of art exhibitions to choose from, and like the cathedrals, baptistry and Palazzo della Ragione, some charge an entrance fee. Gratifyingly, few of these are expensive. With an average entrance price of €3, Euro, it's not going to break the bank, and there are reductions at most places for those over 65, and also for the disabled and those accompanying them. The latter even have free entrance in some places. Foodies need to definitely head for the food market. Located under the Palazzo della Ragione, where cheese shops, salami stalls and butchers vie for customers. Everything is pleasing on the eye and tempting to most, though the horsemeat shop may cause a little surprise and concern for those not used to such things. The food market, which dates back a whopping 800 years, nestles under the incredible hall above, And despite a fire in 1420 and a storm which threatened to demolish the roof in the 1700s, the hall has survived. Incredible frescoes were restored at this time, but perhaps the most unique item of all is the gigantic wooden horse which was built in 1466 and reassembled in the Great Hall in 1837 after it was given to the city by the Capodalista family. This is what really takes your breath away. Despite its massive size, it appears to almost melt into the background. Such is the size of the hall, with its incredible six-metre-high walls. The city of Padua boasts fine examples of architecture, dating back in some instances to Roman times and many to 12th and 13th century. It's easy to imagine one is in a time warp, and yet today people walk and cycle these streets going about their daily tasks, seemingly oblivious to the history that surrounds them. By contrast, the botanical gardens enables one to savour the old and the new. The garden is part of the UNESCO World Heritage List, 
due to its history of cultivating medicinal plants back in 1545 when it was founded. In 2014, they opened the Garden of Biodiversity, which hosts greenhouses that allow the plants to grow in climatic conditions similar to what they would experience naturally. Everything is explained in English and Italian on superbly carved wooden hangings in each of the greenhouses, although Technofundies will be happy to know there is an app that allows you to potter around and be wired for sound. Modern waterfalls form part of the recycling element for the greenhouses and provide an intriguing sight as they cascade only metres from one of the majestic old city churches. Padua is known for its restaurants and whether you want to spoil yourself and your bank account in a three-star Michelin restaurant or opt for one of the many trattorias or bistros which offer excellent value for money, you won't go hungry. This is pasta and wine country, of which the Italians are justifiably proud. For those with the time to spare, a full-day boat trip will take you from Padua to Venice, through the canals and includes visits to some of the stunningly beautiful villas en route. The merchants knew how to live well in Italy, and some of these properties are testimony to their success. For €100 Euro per person, it's a great way to spend a sunny day. But be warned... This excludes lunch and you need to find your own way home again by train or taxi when it's all over. Padua is without a doubt a city of contrast that offers it all, works superbly well and isn't too full of tourists. Its proximity to Milan and Venice airports is a plus, whilst Padua train station is conveniently placed not too far from the city. For those who drive, the autostradas in Italy are excellent, though the tolls can be pricey. It's wise also to ensure you have cash with you for tolls that don't have card machines operating, just as many garages that may be closed on holidays and don't all offer facilities for payment by card or cash. However you decide to get there, Padua definitely won't disappoint. It's very special. From me, Francis, in the heart of Europe, based in Munich, you can read more on my website, travelnews.co.za Until the next time, happy travelling. That was Francis Beasley rounding off the programme, uh, coming to you all the way from P- Padua in Italy. Jeff Harrison reported from Australia and Austria. We had Ben Southall telling us all about his latest trip to Nepal. We had Graham Kenlow from Travel Riders Radio. We had Arthur von Wiesenberg and his guest Max Hartshorn on Around the World Radio in California. We'll be back next month with a brand new edition of Travel Radio Australia. So until then, I'm Renz Weirs, wishing you all happy trails. You've been listening to Travel Radio Australia. The show was produced and hosted by Renz Weirs. It can be played or downloaded from TravelRadioAustralia.com, TravelCastNetwork.com, the iTunes Store, or listen to the show on TuneIn Radio.